Welcome to The Lowdown, a podcast of news and ideas from the Columbia Alumni Association. In many parts of the world, corals are getting sick in the warm water accompanying El Nino, and they're turning bone white. That's called coral bleaching, and in severe cases it can kill them over time. But while scientists know that coral bleaching has been connected to changes in water temperature, many questions remain about the causes and the recovery process. To track the evolution of coral bleaching and hone in on its triggers, a group of surface scientists at Columbia University's Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory teamed up with the World Surf League and GoFlow to launch Bleach Patrol, a citizen science project and app. So we decided to talk with some of those scientists about the project and the issue of coral bleaching. Just as a side note, they were interviewed over the phone, so the audio isn't perfect. The whole project itself of trying to do coral bleaching was motivated by trying to think about global warming and climate change and getting people to appreciate how the ecosystems are going to be responding to this. That's Bruce Shaw. He's a Lamont research professor and surfer. And one of the interesting things about the corals is they're sort of a canary in the coal mine system where they're responding very rapidly and very sensitively to temperature changes. And it seemed like a good system to get people thinking about what we're really going to be facing in the future, in addition to being a really beautiful and awesome system, (laughs) Um, incredibly diverse. They're sort of the rainforests of the sea. Um, So um, something that people can really appreciate and something that we can really see happening before our eyes. We have these models for how the corals are expected to respond. um, And you can see these beautiful global maps, but, you know, on the ground information of how it's actually going to play out and how the different species in different contexts are going to respond is has been historically very location-specific and spotty. So both in time and space, we have very limited data. Um, and so this is a real opportunity to just vastly expand that database of observations. Of course, it's not going to be as sophisticated um, and clean a data set if you really bring in kind of amateur citizen scientists. But, you know, if we have enough people, you can use large N numbers to get... Um, you know, get useful information and also use it to target more sophisticated and careful studies too. Using Bleach Patrol, any surfer, diver, or ocean enthusiast out on the reef can become the eyes of the scientist and contribute to global understanding of coral reefs. If we get enough people doing this and dense enough data coverage, you might actually learn something about where reefs are still healthy, where they're not healthy anymore. Um, which sides of the atolls are have healthy reefs and which sides don't. We don't really have a comprehensive view of that yet. Um, again, it's going to take a lot of uh, people making posts in all kinds of remote places to fill in the map, but that was sort of, a, I think, one, one goal. This is Brad Lindsay, another Lamont research professor and an expert in corals. But if we keep this thing going mm-hmm. over um, a certain length of time, we'll... we'll maybe see some trends. And uh, for example, this coral bleaching event, which Bruce mentioned, this big event this year, is, a, I think, the fourth global scale event since 1982. But most corals tend to recover from these bleaching events. And so we'd like to see, well, where are they recovering? Where are they not recovering? And we may learn that over the next year or two. And so we may get some information about that uh, over a relatively short amount of time. 
So I think, and I think Bruce mentioned this earlier, that people are already pretty excited about coral reefs. What we have going for us already is that they're beautiful. There are so many different species of plants, corals, animals. So people are already pretty excited. This is Logan Brenner. She is a graduate research fellow at Lamont focusing on corals. As a diver, she has seen many bleached corals, often alongside healthy, thriving ones. You can be in this reef that's beautiful looking, and then you'll, you know, kick your fins a little bit, and then you're suddenly in this, like, barren area where corals are just white with no living tissue, broken rubble, just kind of, like, underground ruins. And it can change really quickly. Um, You can have one coral that's healthy, and next door its neighbor is just not is is sick and bleached and broken um so it's kind of this interesting juxtaposition and trying to you know if you're going along diving it's a little bit confusing (laughs) you know if you're just you turn your head one way and a reef is okay and then you go to the other side and it's something's wrong healthy corals get their bright colors from photosynthetic algae that share their skeletal structure and provide food that keeps the coral alive. Under stress, however, these algae can produce oxidizing substances that the corals can't handle. When a coral bleaches, it expels the algae, leaving a bone-white skeleton. Most corals are eventually recolonized by algae over the following months, but if that doesn't happen, they can die. Living healthy corals have a sort of a, their pigments in them. They're different shades of green and tan and olive colors. And when the coral bleaches, it bleaches, it loses its pigments. It doesn't die right away. You should explain that to your listeners. But it's still alive. It's just lost its sort of set of pigments. And what you, it turns white because all of a sudden now we're seeing the white skeleton underneath the pigments. And then if they don't recolonize algae, they, they, they will die. Um, and usually that recolonization takes place several months afterwards. And we don't quite understand, as Logan pointed out, why some corals on a reef will bleach and other ones when they're next door won't, uh, even though they may appear to be the same species. Um, so there's a lot we don't understand about bleaching. Some people, most people think that this is a strong relationship to water, rising water temperatures by bleaching. But there's also some evidence that it could be related to um, cool temperatures that are out of some range. And another possible uh, influence is like um, siltation coming from rivers. And so uh, we're hoping to actually learn something also more about the bleaching phenomena itself. Uh, like why is it happening? Where is it happening? How long does it last for one place? So there's a lot we don't know. And we're also really interested in the recovery process because, as Brad said, you know, after they bleach, they can either get their algae back, which is really their food source. So they get 90% of their food from the algae. So when they lose it, they're kind of starving. So if they can get the algae back, they can recover. Um, but sometimes they don't. And when they die, then there's a whole question about, well, what happens next to this niche in the ecosystem? Um, so one scenario is new corals will come and recolonize this area and over a longer time scale of years corals will regrow so it will recover as a coral colony but another possibility is it gets taken over by algae um, and you end up with a system where it's algae which is you know itself alive but doesn't support the same level of diversity that the corals do so it's one of these cases where kind of multiple equilibriums it could end up in one state or another and which pathway it takes um, is really both an open question, but also, and this is yet another reason why this project is important, it also can depend on interventions that we as humans do. So, for example, um, one of the stresses on these systems is when we overfish the 
the fish that eat the algae. So there are like um, there are certain kinds of fish, like parrotfish, for example, that that eat the algae and help keep the corals in a good, healthy state. Sea turtles are another one of these creatures that help eat the algae and keep the whole ecosystem healthy. So there are ways that we as humans can put less stressors on this ecosystem by not, you know, taking out some of the critical species that help it out. So when we see bleaching, you know, we can respond in a way that, you know, by trying to help this reef, respond in a way that helps it long-term to recover. Well, just going back a few steps, um, so like corals have existed for millions of years in one form or another, and they've experienced multiple extinctions. And the corals that we see in like the very early fossil record are very, look very different and are different from what we have. And, um, you know, as Bruce was saying, I think that one, if there is, you know, these really massive bleaching events, I think a lot of the species that we know and love are might go extinct. But I think another type of equilibrium will be reached. And we could just be looking at a very different reef. Um, just a different composition in the corals and the animals that it can sustain. And also, I know there are, you know, coral reefs are important for um, a lot of, like, medicines and drugs and stuff like that. And so there are also consequences um, that are kind of farther reaching than, at least I think about, I don't usually think about like, the medicines and compounds that are synthesized from the coral tissue. Um, but I know that they are used for some of that stuff. Um, as far as the I don't know about what immediate interventions could have a, an immediate effect. Like if you see a coral bleach, I don't, you know, you can't go and buy scoops in and cool the water down and fix it um, right away. But I think it's just some, you know, I think that would signal that there needs to be some type of change happening. Global episodes of coral bleaching have coincided with four recent strong El Ninos. In 1982, 1998, 2010, and the event underway right now. Hawaii saw severe coral bleaching last fall, and Fiji is currently seeing coral bleaching. Bleaching that happened in Hawaii was especially severe. I think they're talking about not having seen anything like that in many, many years, decades. Um, So, you know, certain spots can get hit really hard by a confluence of things. In this case, the El Nino plus the warm blob in the Pacific, the same thing that was impacting the drought in California. It impacted the water temperatures in Hawaii that made the bleach in there particularly severe this year. And I noticed, too, that um, Fiji is in a place where it usually gets cooler El Nino events, and so it wouldn't be bleaching. Right? But Fiji is bleaching right now because it's actually warmer there than normal. So it's, there's this whole, though we had El Nino events, and underlying that, there's this long-term trends in temperature upwards, which um, may be, in fact, impacting where things are bleaching now when they would normally. But it's very complicated. We don't understand what's going on, I would say. And right now, if you have anybody listening who lives in the southern Indian Ocean, like yeah. Mauritius or Réunion or Madagascar, um, it's a particularly interesting time because we're just about to head into a, the peak bleaching time, according to the NOAA forecast. So it's still cool now, but it's ramping up into a really um, strong temperature perturbation relative to what they usually see, a little like what Hawaii went through in the fall. They're about to go through right now. And it would be particularly valuable to have uh, the before, during, and after. So um, this project took a little bit of time to get going, so we missed some of the stuff we would have liked to have gotten, but there are parts of the world right now, particularly there, um, that uh, some observations would be really 
great to get through the full cycle, not just the recovery phase, which is where a lot of, um, you know, places like Hawaii or another place that's about to enter into or maybe in kind of the peak bleaching phase is uh, the eastern Pacific and the central Pacific. So Panama and Costa Rica, uh, maybe some listeners might be in Costa Rica. So again, there's um, definitely, and the way to really take a look at that is if you go to the NOAA website, they have wonderful maps there about both what has been going on and what's currently going on. And then again, using these El Nino forecasts, what's coming up. NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, puts out a coral bleaching map based on water temperature exchanges and generally coincide with bleaching events. But real-time reports from the reefs with details have been rare. Now, with Bleach Patrol, thousands of GPS-tagged reports, photos, and videos coming from reefs around the world can help scientists gain a better understanding of how bleaching begins and spreads and where corals are most vulnerable. As reports come in, scientists at Lamont will be analyzing the data and posting updates to social media and their website. Meanwhile, on the GoFlow app, participants can see where other ocean enthusiasts have seen bleached and healthy corals and read their descriptions of the reefs. And it's those enthusiasts like surfers and divers that Lamont is really counting on. When you're asked to go and look at something in more detail, you really appreciate it in a much deeper way. And, you know, as surfers, we care about every bump and boil in the reef. Like, we're very aware of, you know, where we are and what's going on. But, you know, we're not typically thinking about this ecology underneath us because it's not something that is always, you know, we're educated about. And so this gives you an opportunity to, you know, a place that you spend so much time in and have, you know, deep affection for to really learn it in a deeper way. And, you know, what we're really asking people to do is kind of snorkel out there and look at cool things and come back. So I think it's something that will both be fun and help you learn in a way that makes your appreciation for it much deeper. Um, for example, one of the things I learned about corals from this, I didn't even know, um, like they, they're, they're really interesting creatures. In addition to kind of being farmers where they farm this algae and get their food from it in a very symbiotic way. They help the algae, the algae helps them. Um, not only are they cooperating with other species, but they're also cooperating with each other. In a, diff- a given colony, the individual polyps, the individual creatures with these tentacles, they share food with their neighbors. They're a very cooperative organism. So they're really interesting creatures. And they're also very sophisticated. You know, one of the ways that they adapt in the waters that are much warmer than other places um, so there's kind of different temperature thresholds that the corals are going to bleach at. Um, but some of them who live in really warm water conditions have developed adaptive mechanisms to handle that. So, for example, they'll, they've, they'll have these almost sunshades, um, sun, you know, kind of, uh, what's the right word? So, so little uh, particles that will reflect the light in different angles. So places where it's really sunny and hot, they adapted to create these particles that will scatter the light around and share the food, but also keep it from getting too hot in certain places. So they're just really interesting creatures. And the more you learn about your environment, um, the more I think it just makes you want to live in a symbiotic way with it. Alejandra, or Ali, Barunda, and Jesse Farmer are two other surfer scientists at Lamont. Ali is a graduate research fellow, and Jesse is a graduate student. Both of them echoed Bruce's thoughts about the relationship between surfers and the ocean. I've spent 
a ton of time in the water, a ton of time surfing, like floating over the tops of these things. And I, I don't look under under the surface as much as I wish I did. Um, it's pretty easy to kind of engage with the coast and with the reefs and with everything that you're like, with, with the coastal environment in this like pretty superficial way as a surfer. I think it's like, oh yeah, I just want to, I want this wave, like I want this barrel and not really push yourself or like know how to access everything that's below you. Um, and then when you, when you actually look down and see what's down there, it's like pretty remarkable. I like, I remember so clearly a couple of God, last year or something, Jess and I were sitting in the water um, out at Long Beach and we were just, we were sitting there having a conversation, not about this particular project, but about kind of how we started doing earth science research in the first place. And for both of us, I think it, for me, I know for sure, so much of it was about the connection I felt with the coastal landscape and how interested I was in understanding the way that the ocean worked, the coastal ocean worked, wind patterns worked, how swell developed in places far away and showed up at our doorstep. Um, and so when we heard that the WSL was interested in doing a project with, with scientists and about, I mean, whatever we wanted really, I, I don't know, it just, it seemed like such an obvious match for, for me and I think for Jesse and probably for Logan too. It's like these two things that we care so much about, the ocean and our like fun time and our work um, and the climate system and the earth, et cetera. Uh, suddenly could all be together in like one package. It just, I don't know, I was so excited when this when this project started. Coral reefs are just fantastic ecosystems. I mean, everyone should visit a coral reef, should snorkel on a coral reef, surf on a coral reef, dive on a coral reef at some point in their life. It's something you can't miss. And, and what we want to do is we, we've set up a system where all we want you to do is just take a couple observations while you're down there looking at these amazing ecosystems and tell us what you see. Do you see corals that are that are alive and in great health? Do you see bleaching? Do you not see bleaching? What's the status of the corals that you're looking at? And if you can include pictures, all the better. And by giving us that information, and you know, we've tried to make a process that's as easy as possible so it won't take much of anyone's time to, to upload these observations, we can hopefully start targeting the very interesting scientific questions about what's going to happen to corals over the, the next year, the next 10 years, the next 100 years. Is bleaching going to lead to a lot of coral mortality, or do coral, will corals gain an enhanced ability to recover from bleaching? These are all really important questions in the field right now, and hopefully with data from people that, that just go get to experience these reefs, um, we can start really chugging away and answering some of these hard questions. Well, bleaching itself is actually pretty easy to identify. It's, it's pretty clear uh, when you look at a coral, when it's been bleached, because you look and you see this big white spot, basically. Maybe the whole coral's white, maybe just some parts of it are white. Um, I keep thinking of this one coral that I saw in, uh, in Honolulu a couple months ago when I was there, and, and you look down on it, and it looked like there were these basically like big white cauliflower heads stuck on the side of the coral where normal healthy coral should have been. So like the whole coral was coral head was sitting there. Eighty percent of it was healthy looking and colorful, and then there are just these big 
white white spots uh, kind of scattered throughout the photo itself. Um, and so it's, it's pretty clear, like you'll look down and you'll see something that doesn't look like the rest of the coral. And if it's whitish, kind of bone colored, and looks a little bit like, like cauliflower, that's probably a blue spot. Keeping coral reefs healthy is about much more than beauty. They protect coastlines from storm erosion and provide protective habitats for young fish and sea life, and are relied on by some 500 million people worldwide. These ecosystems are important for medicine, and they contribute to an estimated $30 billion to the world's economies annually, according to NOAA. I think a huge you know, point of value for this app is not just the data that we're collecting, just to have people caring and getting involved and in how that's going to change their practices. So even if they just see one tweet about something related to coral bleaching or climate change, you know, that could have important, it could have an important impact for that person, even if they're not necessarily going to be collecting the data or even if they only make a few posts. The fact that they were involved and they felt like they were contributing, uh, I think, in- increases accountability for people. And that science and particularly research science seems so separate. And any way that we can bridge that gap is This podcast was produced by the Columbia Alumni Association. To find out more about Bleach Patrol and how you can get involved, go to ldeo.columbia.edu slash beachpatrol. Columbia University is a mecca of great ideas and one of the world's greatest cities. And with more than 320,000 Columbia alumni who are leaders in every field imaginable and spread across the world, the Columbia Alumni Association brings you the latest musings, updates, and insights from Columbia University. Learn more about the Columbia Alumni Association at alumni.columbia.edu. And to get even more news and ideas from Columbia, be sure to check out The Lowdown dot alumni dot columbia dot edu